Okay, let's take our Bibles this morning and we can turn to, we should turn to, Mark chapter 15, as we're continuing through the gospel of Mark. And I do want to remind everyone that uh, this afternoon we have our annual uh, church business meeting, and that's going to be, we're going to have lunch, lunch will be provided, and uh, then we'll have We'll start around 2 o'clock. So we'd like you to stay um, and be uh, participate in that, at least listen to what we are communicating uh, through that particular meeting, and that's today at um, approximately 2 p.m. So let us uh, look at the Gospel of Mark now in uh, chapter 15, and we're going to be looking at verse 16 through verse 32. But before I look there, let's pray. Lord, this morning... Again, as we approach the Word of God, I pray, Lord, that you would just make us attentive, pull us into the narrative so we sense what is going on there. And I pray, Lord, as we consider the things that this text brings out, I pray, Lord, that you would impress upon our heart the very things that we ought to meditate upon and think about every day of our life, about what you accomplished, Lord, on behalf of sinners, because, Lord, all these things you went through because we sinned against you, and uh, we could never make ourselves right with you. You had to have a plan to be able to make us right with you and give us your righteousness and nail our sin to the cross. So I pray, Lord, that we would learn this morning well and then have an ample amount of information to think about as we consider our own salvation. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so far, we have been, remember, uh, we, it's, we're still, it's still Friday morning, uh, probably now around 6 p.m. Shortly after, after dawn, the sun has risen. Uh, a formal uh, trial has taken place. And, of course, the Sanhedrin uh, got the Roman court. Uh, to have the trial, but the only problem is the Roman court found Jesus not guilty, and um, that caused a problem. See, Jesus is not found condemned, is not condemned by the Roman court, but he is found innocent, actually, by the Roman court, and instead he is offered up by some festival custom, and a crowd that was persuaded by a jealous religious body who wanted Jesus dead at all costs. So we see from last time, Pilate, the politician, cowers and caves in verse 15. It says, wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them, and after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. So Pilate is willing, like a good politician, to satisfy the people's wishes. He washes his hands of the matter and, of course, to clear himself, hopefully, from the responsibility for the death of Jesus. And then we have Barabbas, who is the criminal, uh, convicted criminal. He's released. And, uh, of course, it says in verse 15, Pilate released Barabbas, and then Jesus, the innocent, is scourged. And, of course, scourging... Many people die under that even because it really uh, rips their back to shreds right down to the, through the muscle, right to the bone. And, of course, they did not want to kill Jesus in that way. They wanted to keep him alive. Hopefully, Pilate was thinking, if we beat him enough, long enough, maybe the people will say, okay, that's enough. He doesn't have to be crucified. We, we get it. But that's not what happens, of course. Uh, Jesus, the guiltless one, is handed over, verse 15, over to be crucified. So all the levels of people that are present, we see that spiritual blindness, madness, and folly really prevail in this day. And when the soul is dead and the heart is numb, people are capable of committing even the worst of brutal acts. And this is what we see in this section of Scripture. The suffering, the mockery, the torment of the servant king uh, 
is what we see here in our text. So this morning I'm asking you to focus your mind on the things about Jesus' suffering and how the sinful mind concludes in a completely different direction than what is actually taking place, as at least from God's perspective. And so this morning I want you to look at three things about what the Lord is going through. The first thing that should come to your mind and you should ponder concerning the suffering of Jesus is that Jesus was mocked and he was smitten as a would-be king even though he was a great king. Now, look at verse number 16. It says this, The soldiers took him away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and they called together the whole Roman cohort. Now, of course, right here, remember, it is, it is Friday at 6 a.m. in the morning. Jesus is now handed over to the Roman soldiers to prepare Jesus for crucifixion. It was their job to do that. And Jesus is already badly beaten. A cohort of soldiers is quite a few, actually, uh, maybe even up to 200 soldiers. Some say that it's even more. The soldiers now have the authority over the prisoner, and they took the liberty at that time to mock and smite Jesus, this would-be king. Now, I say it like this for this reason. The soldiers say, okay, if you're supposed to be a king, we're going to treat you like a king, all right? And so there are actually there's six things the soldiers did to ridicule Jesus' claim to be a king. Mark makes really a vivid description of the horrific event. The first thing is this. What does a king need? A king needs a royal robe, right? So in verse number 17, notice what it says. They dressed him up in purple. That, that they put a, really a robe of purple on him, signifying, of course, mocking him as a king. And then the second thing a king needs is a crown. It says in verse 17, and after twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on him. So they put on his head this mock crown. And then in verse number 18, a king requires adoration. It says, and they began to acclaim him, Hail, King of the Jews, all in a mocking manner, a sarcastic acknowledgement of his royal dignity. And then a fourth thing is that a king needs a staff. Now here it says they kept beating him. They kept beating his head with a reed. So, so Jesus is addressed as a king who is powerless to use his scepter, here recognized as a reed, so they beat him with it. And then, fifthly, a king requires respect. And they disrespect him by hurling upon him the grossest kind of insult, in verse 19, spitting on him. And then also in verse 19, the king requires worship. So what do they do? They are bowing before him and mocking Jesus in a with worship type of position because he was supposed to be this great king. Now, the tense of the verb that is used here denotes the soldiers' actions were repeated for some time. Actually, Pilate let this barbarity go on for almost three hours, from 6 a.m. to 9 a.m. The Apostle Peter said this of Jesus in his epistle. He says, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. That was the attitude of Jesus through all this. So this shameful, demeaning activity was only brought to an end for the purpose of keeping Jesus alive and preparing him for the ultimate death sentence. And if you notice what the soldiers did in verse 20, after they had mocked him, they took the purple robe off him and put 
his own garments on him. Now, they probably did this out of respect of the Jews. Ultimately, the Romans would just strip them down completely naked, but they put his clothes back on him so that as they went through the procession, and of course, uh, the procession went through major roads. Now, some people uh, think that the Via Della Rosa is the, is the place that Jesus actually walked on. That's probably not the case. The reason why is because Jerusalem has been destroyed and built and destroyed and built and destroyed and built some six times. So the original road that uh, Jesus probably walked on, we don't even know what it, it would have been, but we do know this, that the Romans always brought the criminals through the most populated streets, and then the actual site for the crucifixion was done off a major road. They wanted people to see their power and their authority, and they also wanted people to see that if you live and respond against the Roman authorities, this is what happens to you, all right? And so the people, of course, do get that message uh, when there's some public execution, some public hanging, the people watching do get a message that I don't want to be the one getting hung. I don't want to be the one getting crucified. So the message is a pretty powerful one. And so this is what Jesus is going through. It's completely humiliating. And so this procession, it says in the end of verse number 20, it says, and they led him out to crucify him. So the procession for criminals to be crucified was, again, as public as possible. And usually the procession went through streets that were probably the busiest, uh, the most things that are going on, would, they would be paraded through those streets. Now, in this part of the text, Jesus is viewed in a different kind of way by the soldiers. All right, the soldiers are really running this. And, of course, behind what the soldiers are doing is the Jewish authorities, you know, egging them on to do these things. And so we see, first of all, that Jesus is viewed as a man who needed some help. Uh, Jesus was debilitated at this point by the suffering already he already endured. And so another Jew was compelled to carry Jesus' cross. Mark, uh, once again, shows us Jesus in his weak humanity, breaking down under the load of the cross uh, so completely that even the mean-spirited soldiers saw his present frailty and had to do something about it. Notice in verse 21, it says, and they pressed into service a a bypasser by coming from uh, the country, Simon of Cyrene. Of course, that was Africa. He was from Africa. He was probably in Jerusalem to worship. And it says the father of Alexander and Rufus uh, to bear his cross. So they pulled this guy off the street. Usually it was probably coming out of the gate of Jerusalem, and they commandeered him to do carry the cross for Jesus. And so that... All that a Roman soldier actually had to do was to tap the soldier of any person they wanted to with the flat of their spear to press them into service. Everybody who was uh, in the Roman uh, system kind of knew this. This was made known. And so really the term came to mean to requisition someone. Um, It was a first used in a a Persian royal post where um, the royal, actually, mail service of the Persian Empire would requisition anybody they needed to accomplish their mission. In Roman times, it was used for military or civil service. The term came to mean, as the text uses it here, to press someone into service. In other words, they didn't have a choice. All right? When the Roman soldiers came and laid their sword on your shoulder, you did not have a choice. It wasn't a up for negotiation. It was 
you're going to do this, or you know what's going to happen? You're going to be at the end of the spear, all right, dangling on it. All right, so that's the kind of mindset that was they had. Uh, it's possible that something happened to Simon picking up Jesus' cross on Golgotha because that really dramatically changed his life. He could have believed in Jesus on that particular day because it says here that he, he had sons named Rufus and Alexander. And, of course, we find in Romans chapter 16, verse 13, this is what it says about a man named Rufus. Greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord. Now, this could be the same man that was now the son of this man who was carrying Jesus' cross. We cannot know that for sure, but the possibility is pretty high that that could be the case because he's... Actually, Simon is mentioned again in Acts when Paul and Barnabas are sent on their mission to the Gentiles, and it mentions Simeon, which is another form of Simon called Niger, and they know that those two put together mentioned uh, um, when somebody's called Niger, that means that they were probably from North Africa because they came, they had a, a swathy skin because of the of the sun and the climate in that part of the world. And, of course, Cyrene, in, in, it mentions it again in Acts, is North Africa. So it's a great possibility that this man somehow was changed by this moment, became a believer, his family became a believer, and they became very influential in the church of Jesus Christ and the proclamation of the gospel. But it's hard to make that hard and fast, but it's possible. A second thing, that Jesus is viewed as an unclean man. If you notice what it says in verse number 22, then they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of the skull. Now, why is that? Because no one could be killed inside the city walls of Jerusalem, especially a a condemned criminal. And so they had to take them outside the city to do the killing. Golgotha was, of course, outside the gate of Jerusalem. Um, Even Hebrews tells us, the book of Hebrews tells us that, therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So there is an indication here that Jesus was unclean, Uh, to the Jew, and so therefore he could not be crucified in in the city limits but had to be taken outside the city limits to be crucified. So Jesus was taken to Golgotha, which is translated the place of the skull. Now, of course, the Greek term here may sound very familiar to you. Uh, It's the word kranon, all right, which, of course, here translated skull, but it course, it's the word cranium, all right? In other words, the actual place of the skull refers to the shape of the hill like a cranium, the round top of the skull. So it referred to the skull-like hill outside of Jerusalem, which is now occupied by a Mohammedan cemetery, a hill that rises right above the garden tomb. So this is Uh, most likely the very place that Jesus Christ was crucified. And not too long ago, they found the garden tomb right below that. So that was the place. So this Golgotha really was a place that looked like, when you look at it, uh, a cranium, a top of a head. And um, so that's why they called it that, the place of the skull. Some say, no, it's because of people who died there and all their bones were left there and all the skull, uh, you know, Skulls were left all around, and that's probably not the case. It, uh, it's what the, the way the hill looked. So, see, so Jesus is considered an unclean man because of his uh, being found guilty, and and then of course taken out of the city to be killed. And then the third way Jesus is viewed is he's viewed as someone who needs drugs. 
in verse number 23, it says, They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. See, at Golgotha, Jesus was offered a narcotic. Myrrh was added to wine to give a stupefying effect. Drugged wine was given for several reasons. The first was, uh, of course, the terrible pain suffered by such a death as crucifixion. And secondly, it subdued the criminal to make it easier on the soldiers to nail that person to the cross. However, Jesus did not take it, it says in verse number 23. He wanted to remain perfectly clear-headed and sober in order to take the full brunt of suffering so none of his senses could be dulled. A third, a, a next way that Jesus is viewed is, is he is viewed as a man hopelessly condemned. In verse 24, it says, They crucified him and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. See, once they started casting lots for the clothes, it is thought the person who's dead doesn't need their clothes anymore. So the soldiers, it was customary for the soldiers to cast lots to see what parts of the clothing they get. Usually there was four lots, three were blank, one was marked with who would get the garment because the garment usually taken to the cross was one piece. Uh, so you couldn't cut it up. So it had to be given to at least one of them. And so, uh, but remember, this was also fulfilled prophecy. It tells us in Psalm 22, verse 18, they divided my garments among them for my clothing. They cast lots. Psalm tells us that. Matter of fact, this whole section is can be verified by the book of Psalms. That all these things were prophetic. They had to happen according to what the scriptures told us. And then in verse number 24, it says to us that, and they crucified him. That's the first part of the verse. This is the reason why this was all happening. And according to church history, Jesus bore really was crucified on a T-shaped cross. It really had no top piece at all, like our present crosses would have, Jesus was lifted up no more than 36 inches off the ground, so he was very close to the ground. And the great nails that were driven through his hands and feet were done usually while the cross was on the ground and then lifted up into position. And of course, Luke tells us, because some people believe that Jesus' feet were not actually pierced, but... There's a problem with that, and the problem is that there's too many scriptures that say his feet were pierced. In fact, Luke 24, 39 says, see my hands and my feet, all right? And then, of course, in Psalm twenty-two sixteen, it says, for dogs have surrounded me, a band of evildoers have encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. So according to scripture, Jesus' hands and feet were pierced through with these great nails. So crucifixion is a very horrible way to die. It was agonizing. It was humiliating. It was exhausting because it was designed to be a slow and painful death. Some say that one could linger on the cross for four days before they succumb to death. Four days that did not happen with Jesus. Matter of fact, Jesus died before the soldiers came around to break the legs of the people so they would die immediately. And we'll look at that some time later. Yet, we, we do know this, and I, I do, don't want you to get this impression, because we see the greatest agony Jesus suffers is not physical. It was at rather the agony of soul as he bore the guilt of the world's sin. That is what really made the cross a horrible place to be. 
Now, the only thing is that we don't exactly know the depth of the suffering that Jesus went through at that particular time. The scriptures does not go into great detail about what he suffered and what he did when he suffered the spiritual part of his death uh, for the guilt of the world's sin. But nonetheless, Jesus is also viewed as a guilty man. In verse number 25, it says it was the third hour when he when they crucified him. Now, the third hour would be 9 o'clock in the morning. So Jesus was on the cross at 9 in the morning. And uh, that's what they wanted. They wanted to get it done early. Uh, Jesus is hanging there at that particular time. And um, then he right up until noontime, which would have been the sixth hour, something changed in nature, which I'll look at next time. But the superscription that um, was actually displayed through the uh, procession and held up by uh, one of the, sometimes one of the soldiers or, again, another citizen that they would commandeer, and it would list on on it in big letters why this person was being crucified, what their crime was, why they were guilty. And, of course, in verse 26, the superscription uh, publicly displayed the charge for which the person was guilty, and, and it's, it says this, the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. That's why he's guilty. Doesn't seem like a legitimate charge, does it? But for the Jews, it was a legitimate charge because they claim, Jesus claimed something they think was not true. And so they believed that he deserved this. So as Jesus was raised on the cross, the Jews noticed this superscription which Pilate had caused to be placed above him, and they insisted that he modify it. But Pilate refused to modify it. In fact, let's take our Bibles and and look over to John chapter 19. John chapter 19, verse 22. And I want you to notice John recording the same incident, the same thing, and he lists and includes other things. In John chapter 19, verse number 19, it said, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. And it says in verse 22, Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. So even though this superscription was used in a mocking way, It was Pilate's way of revenge against the Jews. In other words, if you want Jesus this badly, you will have to have him as your king. Now, of course, what is ironic is that what is written is true. Jesus is the great king, even though it was used in a mocking way. So that is what we see of the Lord Jesus Christ, that not only was Jesus was mocked and smitten as a would-be king, even though he was a great king, and Jesus was also led to the slaughter as a defenseless and helpless lamb, even though he was the great lamb of God. A third thing about the Lord Jesus Christ is that Jesus was crucified to save others not himself, even though he was the Son of God and a great king. So I want you to notice in verse 27, the great king was crucified with sinners. In verse 27, they crucified two robbers with him, one on the right and one on his left. Now these convicted robbers were 
directly connected to Jesus because they were sinners. They were not merely petty thieves. They were called actually highwaymen. Those who robbed innocent victims while they were traveling from place to place, which included beatings and often murder and other crimes. So these were not peaceful men who got caught robbing a penny store. These were serious criminals that were being crucified with Jesus. And Jesus is smack right in the middle of two criminals. Jesus, that means, is the most important person who held the center place between these two sinners who are dying justly for their crimes. And for your information, if you notice in your Bibles, uh, in verse number 28, uh, either it is italicized, or it is omitted, or it is bracketed, meaning that there was not enough textual support to include this passage in uh, our Bibles. However, our text is so clear that Jesus was fulfilling prophecy, and so the scribes who were writing Scripture put it in the sidebar of the text, and it somehow got into it. Now, if you have the New American Standard, what does it read there in verse 28? And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Well, that's exactly what's happening here, right? And so he got in there, so I would say, why don't you just leave it alone? Because that's exactly what it says in Isaiah 53. Because it says he was poured, he, he, he was poured out, he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. So Jesus was not about saving himself. He was about saving his people, which required Jesus to stay on the cross until the work was finished. So Jesus not only was crucified with sinners, but Jesus Christ was crucified for sinners. And in verse 29 through verse 32, we have actually a list of sinners in our text. See, Jesus was fulfilling his mission that he was not dying for the righteous, for there are none righteous. But he was the substitute sacrifice for all kinds of sinners. Sinners of all levels, of all walks of life. For the scriptures tell us in Corinthians, he made himself who knew no sin to be sin in our behalf so that we may become the righteousness of God in him. So it's, it's kind of hard to believe that Jesus Christ would die for the helpless and would die for the ungodly, and would die for all kinds of sinners, and would die for his enemies. Who dies for their enemies? Nobody dies for their enemies. You kill the enemy. You don't die for them. Jesus dies for his enemies. In fact, Scripture is pretty clear about this. Romans chapter 5, the, the passage of Scripture we, we often would quote in, in witnessing to somebody or evangelizing somewhere. It says in Romans 5, verse number 6, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For no one, for one will hardly die for a righteous man, perhaps, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, shall we be saved by 
his life. See, Jesus Christ came to die for sinful humanity. So three groups of sinners are highlighted. Sinners who stabbed Jesus repeatedly with their cowardly, degrading, and insulting tongue. Here's the first group in verse 29 and 30. And this group repeatedly derided him. This first group is really the Jews from the city. Notice what it says. Those passing by, verse number 29, were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha! You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourselves, yourself, and come down from the cross. So see, this first group were most likely Jews from the city and those visiting because of the Passover holidays who were just passing by, trying to get a closer look at what was going on, and they derided Jesus with the same charges of the false witnesses in chapter 14 of Mark. Now, this again was prophesied in Psalm 22, where it says, all who see me sneer at me. They separate the lip. They wag the head, saying, commit yourself to the Lord. So again, everything being done according to what was written in the book of Psalm. And of course, they completely misread the real intent of Jesus' words because he was actually talking about the temple of his body that will be torn down in death and rebuilt in resurrection. They totally missed it. So this group was actually challenging Jesus' power. They were saying, if you have the power then to destroy the temple and raise it up in three days, then you can save yourself. Come on. If you don't come down, you have no power. Your power is a sham. That's group one. Group number two, verse 31 and 32, this group also repeatedly mocked Jesus. Who was this group? This is the group that's been with Jesus from day one. This is what it says in verse number 31. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Hey, guys, it's a little late. It's a little late. The second group is the chief priests and scribes of the religious establishment. And what they're actually doing in this statement is challenging Jesus' whole ministry from day one to the cross. They're challenging everything he ever did. Right? Kind of saying this, if you saved others, then you can save yourselves. Show us a sign by coming down from the cross. Come on, you big talking king, you must be false because you cannot save yourself. So that means all your miracles are spurious. See, you are no Messiah. You are no king. Just show us a sign by coming down from the cross. And then it says, so that we may see and believe. Well, you know what? what? What they do here is not far off from what we all do. Give me some proof. Give me some proof that this is true, and I'll believe. Right? But Jesus says if you want proof, first you have to believe. You have to believe that I am and a rewarder of those who diligently seek me. See, faith comes first before we see things. Matter of fact, you can stack up all the proof in the world that Jesus did all these things to people, and they can still walk away, and many people do, and not believe. Because they have to be regenerated. They have to be made new. God has to convict them of their sin, of righteousness, of judgment, and he has to open up their eyes to see so they can be born again to the kingdom of God. In fact, the Apostle Paul exposed the character of the Jews by writing this in 1 Corinthians, the first chapter. Indeed, the Jews ask for a sign, right? And the Jews 
we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block. See, Christ crucified will always be a stumbling block. It is still a stumbling block to the Jews today. It is still that. Why? Because they cannot believe that a Messiah, a king, should be crucified. That doesn't show that that person is a king or that they have any kind of power. It shows that they are weak and useless and they're a sham. And that's exactly what they're saying here, that Jesus is a big sham. But if you come down to the cross, maybe we'll believe. They're not going to believe anything. It's too late for them. And then there's group three. And group three is kind of a surprising. Group three repeatedly reviles Jesus. And notice what it says in verse 32. It says, those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. That means the two thieves on his right and his left were insulting him. Now, of course, because of their criminal nature, you wouldn't think it would be such a surprise to to revile Jesus. And, and the word revile means to berate him, to insult him. Actually, that's what it says in our text. Those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. So the ro- robbers being crucified with Jesus both first joined in reviling with everyone else. They just jumped on the bandwagon and said, well, we might as well do it too. Until... One came to see who Jesus really was, and it's recorded not in Mark, but I want you to turn to Luke chapter 23, and notice in verse number 39 through verse 43. In verse number, Luke chapter 23, look at verse 39. It says, one of the criminals who were hanging there was hurling abuse at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him said, do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? Verse 41. And we indeed are suffering justly for we are receiving what we deserve for our our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. Now, this is a very significant passage of scripture because this man can do nothing at all to help himself. This man cannot go back and undo what he did. This man is hanging on the cross as a genuinely condemned Criminal who has had all the proof to put him there on the cross, and he admits it. And he sees something in Jesus, probably following the storyline through Jerusalem all this time. And he sees something in Jesus that is innocent. And he sees Jesus as a king hanging on that cross. And he sees Jesus as the only solution he has to his problem. And this is the only thing he asks him. Jesus, remember me when you come to your kingdom. Well, what was Jesus' response to the criminal, this condemned criminal? Well, Jesus answered, look at verse number 43. Truly, I say to you, today, notice, you shall be with Me in paradise. Is that not authority? Is that not acting like a king, speaking like a king? Jesus says, today you're going to be with me in paradise. That, That means something. You know what that means? That means what Jesus was doing on the cross is efficacious and beneficial to those who believe in him, who cannot do anything for themselves but have faith in Christ. That means the same with us. So do you see how 
a work-based religious system is totally negated in this one particular event. It could have never happened. So what, what does this suffering and mockering and torment of the servant king do for those who repent and place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for eternal salvation? Well, it does many things. And I, in my reading, I came up with several ones and other people that I've read and included them in about eight things from this particular text. But remember this. Before I say these things, remember this. It was us and our sin that were the cause of all Christ's suffering. It was us and our sin that was the cause of all of Christ's suffering. Well, here are eight things to ponder and try to ponder them often. Here's the first thing. Jesus' suffering in our place brings us to God. It tells us in 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also died for sin once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having put to get death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Secondly, Jesus' suffering in our place delivers us from the pit of destruction and the torment of the prison of hell. Thirdly, Jesus' suffering in our place sets us free from every charge in the day of judgment and to present us faultless before the Father with exceeding joy. Fourthly, Jesus' suffering in our place is so that we might have glory and honor and eternal life through faith in Christ's atonement and that we might be received into God's kingdom with triumph at the last day and receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Fifthly, Jesus' suffering in our place is that we might be clothed in the perfect righteousness of Christ because we have no righteousness of our own, not clothing defiled by sin, but pure white unstained wedding garments for the presence of our king. Sixthly, Jesus suffered in our place so that we may be be delivered from the curse of sin. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Seventh, Jesus suffered in our place so that we we may be reconciled or reckoned innocent for Christ's sake and found worthy to escape God's judgment and and be pronounced not guilty before heaven and earth. And then lastly, Jesus suffered in our place so that we may have a strong consolation when we walk down into the valley of the shadow of death fearing no evil. All those things and more are accomplished for us and benefit for our, are a benefit to us every day in our Christian walk. We have a confidence that you could get nowhere else than from when we learn the word of God. And even a confidence to be able to be have a strong stamina when we are even faced with with death right before us. Because we know that death is that doorway into the presence of God. For even, even Paul said, therefore, be always of good courage, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. But when we're absent from the body, we're present with the Lord, right? So that... Christ makes that way into his presence, a way that something he accomplishes on our behalf that gives us a strong consolation that we know where we're going because God has told us the truth. And because he told us the truth and he cannot lie, I rest completely on him. And what God says will come true 
It has come true, and it will come true. All of it will come true. And we, being his children, are privileged to know that. Let's try to keep these things in mind. These are the very things that will transform you. And then think often of the suffering of Christ done on your behalf and the benefits that secure your total salvation for those who believe completely in the finished work of Jesus Christ. These are the things that make us like him. These are the things that make life worthwhile. These are the things that make looking to a resurrection and the life of Christ something that comforts and encourages us every single day. As we live in this world with many discouraging things happening every day, with negative news coming out from all parts of this planet, uh, and to seem like there's no longer any hope for anybody, there's hope in Christ. See, and if you have that, and you know that, then you have benefits that other people sought their whole life to obtain, studied their whole life to understand, and didn't. The Lord gave it to you. Don't take those things lightly. Those are precious treasures that need to be occupying our minds all the time. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for the word of God. Lord, we as your people are are happy and joy-filled when we know that these things are ours. They're for us. And Lord, as we understand those things, I pray that you would just well us up with the peace of God and the joy that passes all understanding. And Lord, and make us, through these truths, transform our minds so we could every day give ourselves over as a living sacrifice to you, which we know is to be holy and acceptable and reasonable service as one of your children. And Lord, take us that we would not be conformed to the world, but we would be transformed by the renewing of our mind so we can know the good and the acceptable and the perfect will of God. And that, Lord, also that we wouldn't think of ourselves higher than we ought to or lower than we ought to, but just the way you created us. And then, Lord, send us out every day with zeal and with the love of God and love for people to do your work with the gifts you've given us. And I pray, Lord, that we would not waste the knowledge that we gain from hearing and understanding Scripture. I pray that it would always strengthen us and make us mighty men and women of God. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together. King of the Jews is